just setting up a few props. Good morning, everyone. My name's uh, Tim. I'm the senior minister uh, here at St John's. And uh, let me add my welcome to the welcome you've already received. In our teaching series at the moment, as we're looking at the Bible together, we're uh, doing a series called The Heart of Life. And uh, really what this is all about is how do we have God at the centre of our lives? How do we have God in the midst of everything that we do and shape our lives with God at the centre. Now, we're having a look at the book of uh, Leviticus as a way of doing this. Now, if you're visiting with us today or you're new with us, you're not that familiar with the Bible, let me just say that Leviticus is probably the, the least popular, most confusing book of the Bible. And I think the staff team, as we've been talking about this sermon series, agrees that I've got the doozy. This is the hardest passage within the least popular book of the Bible. So welcome, it's great to have you with us today. We hope we don't put you completely um, off the Bible and church, but we believe that all of the Bible is God's word and is useful for us and will teach us and help us. And the thing about the book of Leviticus is it teaches uh, what God told the nation of Israel about how they, as a community and a nation, would have God at the centre. And quite literally, they arranged their lives so that God was at the centre. There was a tent called the tabernacle, uh, which was set up, which represented God living in the midst of his people. And their entire community, their tents were centred around the tabernacle, God's presence in the midst of their lives. And so we're thinking, what does this mean for us to have God at the centre? And what does it mean for our relationships in particular? What does it mean for our relationship with God? What does it mean for our relationships with ourselves, with other people and with the creation as we care for the world that God has placed us in? Last week, Andrew uh, spoke about our relationship with God and he showed that how in the book of Leviticus, God provided sacrifices as a way of keeping God at the centre of life and relating properly to God. So there were sacrifices which were a way of expressing thanksgiving that every good thing that we have comes from God and sacrifices for forgiveness to come to God and to say I'm sorry forgive me and to receive that forgiveness and Andrew showed us that as, as Christian people reading Leviticus in light of the coming of Jesus we see that Jesus with his death on the cross offered the perfect sacrifice uh, and brings us uh, full forgiveness and fully into relationship with God. So this week we're thinking about the next sort of in the series of circles, how do we relate to ourselves? How do we think about ourselves? How do we understand our identity? Uh, and what do we do with our full selves that God has given us? Now you might think that understanding yourself uh, is easy. We spend every single minute of every single day with ourselves. We should understand ourselves fairly well, you would think, but we don't, do we? Humans often have a great deal of difficulty thinking about their identity, understanding themselves, being connected with who they are. We can be unaware of our emotions, unaware of the things that tempt us, unaware even of our own bodies, let alone our spiritual life. We humans often lack self-awareness and we struggle with our identity and our place in the world. Uh, the great Russian novelist uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky once said, every ant knows the formula of its anthill, 
Every bee knows the formula of its beehive. They know it in their own way, not in our way. Only humankind does not know its formula. Only humankind does not know its formula. Do you know your formula? Do you know who you are? Do you know who you've been made to be and how you're supposed to relate in the world and to live? That's the key question that we're thinking about today. And as Andrew says, this is particularly important as we've come to a baptism service today because baptism is all about identity and it's all about a way of life. Uh, As uh, these two boys have been baptised today, Joshua and Harrison have come and their parents and godparents have made some very serious promises on their behalf. Um, Promises about their own beliefs, their own intentions about how they will live and how they want these boys to live and to understand their own identity in relationship with God. And of course, whenever we come to a baptism, it's a reminder for every single one of us present of our own baptismal promises, our own commitments, our own identity and relationship with God and how we understand ourselves. How am I, as a baptised person, to understand myself, to know myself, and how I'm supposed to live. So we'll look at the book of Leviticus together today and see what it teaches us. Um, The Bible reading today, which Nikki brought to us, is from Leviticus chapter 20, but in some ways that's kind of a summary, and uh, I'm going to take a broad sweep and look at uh, a series of chapters in the book of Leviticus which show us uh, this theme of relating to ourselves and how we understand ourselves. And really the key phrase, perhaps the key phrase throughout the book of Leviticus, but certainly for understanding our own identity, is this one. God says repeatedly, be holy because I am holy. You see that there, a series of references throughout the book of Leviticus. Now we struggle with the word holy, we struggle with it because we often give it a negative meaning. So we describe people as being holier than thou. If a person is holy, then they're up themselves, right? They think they're better than everybody else and they look down their noses at other people. But actually in the Bible, the word holy um, is a positive word, and all it means is set apart, different, special, set apart for a particular purpose. So in the Bible, God himself is described as being holy, meaning that God is distinct, God is different from everything that he has made. And to speak of God's holiness is to speak of God's radiant goodness, and purity, that he is stunningly good, powerfully good, scarily good and pure. So uh, you can think of it like the sun. The sun is radiant with its powerful goodness, um, but because of that it is also dangerous. You can't sort of land uh, a spaceship on the sun, you'd be burnt up, you can't casually approach the sun. And yet the sun is good, it, it, it glows with warmth and power, life on earth wouldn't survive without it. Um, and God is similar to that, God is holy, pure, good, and yet he's dangerous at the same time because his goodness is so powerful and people lack God's holiness and goodness and perfection. And Andrew spoke last week about how unholy people can approach a holy God and how God provides a way for people to be in relationship with him. But now this week we see God says, I want you to be holy, just as I am holy, because I am holy, you too must be holy. 
This is all about identity. God is their God. They are his people. God is holy, therefore his people must reflect his character. They must be holy as well. And you see this repeated throughout the book. Twice in our Bible reading this morning, we had a phrase which basically uh, said this. Verse 24, I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. Verse 26, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Do you see that theme of being set apart, special, holy, distinct, living in a different way to reflect God's character? This is primarily, again, about identity and how they understand themselves. Because they are in relationship with God, because God is a certain way, they are to reflect that as his people. So let's be perfectly clear what is and isn't being said here. It is not, be holy and then I will love you. It's not, be holy and then I'll choose you. It's not, be holy and then you can belong to me. Instead it is, God said, I love you. I've chosen you. You belong to me, so be holy. Relationship with God, identity as God's people comes first and holiness is to reflect that, reflecting God's character as his people. Well, that's all well and good, but what does holiness mean? Okay, God says be holy. What does that look like? How do you reflect that uh, in your life? Well, Leviticus will go in detail, practical, gory detail about what holiness of life, what it looks like for Israel to be different and to live the way that God wants them to do, which is wonderful for them. But it is weird for us. If you thought the sacrificial system that Andrew spoke about last week was strange, you ain't seen nothing yet. There is some really strange stuff in Leviticus. And I want you to remember as we come to this how we read the book of Leviticus. Okay? Here is the book of Leviticus. I've got it open here to our chapter. 3,000 years have passed from this book until we find ourselves here approaching this strange ancient book uh, with various things in it. And the key thing that we need to remember is that between the book of Leviticus and between us in the present is Jesus. And the coming of Jesus transforms how we understand this book, how it comes to us and what it means for us as we approach it. We have to look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ, how he fulfills much of what happens here and how it changes what it means for us. So I want you to keep in mind that we do have to come back and think about this in light of Jesus Christ. But to start with, we're just going to think about the book of Leviticus uh, in its own right and what it was teaching Israel. But when it gets weird and when it gets strange and when you want to throw it away, keep in your mind, we're coming back to Jesus and we're going to think about what it means. So what did God say to Israel about being holy? Well, throughout the book, there is this distinction made between what is clean and what is unclean, or what is 
pure, to put it another way, and what is impure. And holiness of life for Israel was a holistic thing. It involved all of life, it involved uh, body as well as mind, and God's purpose from them, for them was holiness, to be clean rather than un- be unclean, and where there was unclean, to move back to being clean. So chapters 11 to 15 of the book of Leviticus deal with what you might call ritual purity, a whole series of things about what it means to be clean and what to do when things are unclean. So chapter 11 deals with clean and unclean food uh, and we had that referred to in our Bible reading today as well. Um, We're kind of familiar with this idea because we, we know about kosher food because Jewish people... Uh, today still follow many of these food laws and will not eat certain things but will eat other things. Things like pork, for example, are not kosher and the reason is because of the book of Leviticus and what it outlines about clean and unclean animals. If you're someone who likes flowcharts, here's a flowchart. It's too small for you to read but that's okay. The idea here is that you can go through any type of animal and say, okay, is it a land animal, a sea animal, a bird or an insect? Um, and then follow the rules to decide, is it clean, therefore you can eat it, or is it unclean, therefore you can't eat it. And every single animal is categorised in this day, clean in this way, clean and unclean. Uh, chapters 12 and 15 basically relate to bodily fluids. Okay, If you have to sum it up, do you know how hard it is to find via a Google search, a suitable image for church when you search bodily fluids. Um, Anyway, there it is. Two chapters on bodily fluids. Weird? Very weird. Okay, Blood, semen, all of these sorts of things are dealt with and how they make one clean or unclean. Uh, And it's to do with sort of these fluids leaving the body which will make you unclean for a period of time. What's going on here? The unifying theme seems to be that the the loss of these fluids in in the way that they're described are are symbols of of death. So these fluids relate to the things of life and the things of death, but the fact that they're leaving the body uh, is indicative of of lack of health, lack of life, um, death. So that's that's the image. The fact that these fluids are leaving the body means that they're not generative, they're not life-giving in this case, but they're symbols or pictures for Israel of death. And elsewhere in the book of Leviticus, dead bodies similarly are unclean. So if a person touches a dead body, they become unclean as well. And what you see throughout these chapters as well is that uncleanliness is, for want of a better word, contagious. So if you've got something that is clean and something that is unclean and you bring them into contact with each other, what happens? The thing that is unclean makes the thing that is clean also unclean. Not just people touching each other passing on uncleanliness, but objects as well. Uncleanliness spreads and is contagious. There is this movement where unclean moves to clean, that death overpowers life, that uh, sickness and uh, unhealth, if you like, for for other words, overtakes the things that are clean and healthy. 
It's a bit like um, King Midas. You know, King Midas in uh, Greek mythology has the power that everything he touches turns to gold, but it becomes a curse because um, his own daughter who he touches and has life in her dies as she becomes gold. It's a bit like that but with uncleanliness. Everything that is touched by something that is unclean also becomes unclean. Chapters 13 and 14 deal with uh, skin diseases um, which make you unclean. It's a bit like a medical textbook, this chapter. Uh, This type of pustule is okay, but this is not. If it's this colour, you're good. If it's this colour and it's got this colour hair in it, then it's not. Okay. Um, Again, it's about unhealthy and deathly things which are present in our bodies and need dealing with. Uh, It's interesting that the only medical things that are dealt with in the book of Leviticus are skin disorders. So it's only things that can be seen. Again, symbols of the things that are unhealthy in our lives and in our bodies. Sickness leading to death. These chapters also deal with mould. Yep, mould. If you've got mould on your clothes, call the priest. They need to check it out. If you've got mould in your house, call the priest. They need to investigate what type of mould it is and what needs to be done about it. Because in all of these chapters, there's processes that need to be followed. If something is unclean, then it needs to be dealt with so that it can become clean again. Now, these categories of unclean and clean are very hard for us to understand and to get our heads around. And we we need to understand what they are and aren't speaking about. This is not just about hygiene. This is not just God saying, I want to fight germs in Israel Dirt is bad, let's get rid of it. It's more complicated than that. And it's also not about sinfulness at its heart. Unclean is not a strictly moral category either. In fact, being unclean was unavoidable for the people of Israel. It happened as part of the daily, weekly, monthly cycles of the body and life. If you had a relative who died, you needed to bury them. You needed to touch that dead body and that was the right thing to do but at the same time it made you unclean and the uncleanliness needed to be dealt with. And for all of these things there were simple processes that could be followed. You just waited a period of time, you washed yourself in a certain way, at times you offered a sacrifice and you moved again from being unclean to being clean again. There was nothing wrong with being unclean but you needed to go through a process to become clean. And the only thing that was wrong with being unclean is if you tried to approach God in the state of uncleanliness. So being unclean, you could not come to the tabernacle and approach God then. You needed to properly prepare yourself before you could come to God. God is a holy God. He's distinct and set apart. Therefore, you need to go through the process of becoming clean again and you can walk into God's presence in the heart of the camp. What's going on here? Well, like much of Leviticus, this is a teaching point for the people of Israel demonstrating about the completeness of life that God is interested in. That holiness is about all of ourselves. It's not just about what we think about, but it's what we do with our bodies. God is interested in every single part of us and setting aside our whole selves for his presence and for his holiness. 
They're to remind Israel of the character of God, of his purity, his goodness and his purposes and to remind them that they are to be completely different and set apart for God, different to other nations that don't know God and don't follow him. So to return to this image, they are to stand out, not in just some random way of you know, being individuals for the sake of it, but standing out so that they would reflect something of what God is on about, that God is on about wholeness and purity and life and health and they are to be obedient to God and different in those ways. They're God's holy people so their lives should look different and they should reflect different standards that God has called them to. And this idea of purity flows over to other areas of life as well. It's not just all about rituals, but it's also about moral behaviour as well. So there's whole chapters in Leviticus dealing with sexual integrity, how we use our bodies to honour God with our sexuality and to live in the right way. There's chapters there about how the poor and the vulnerable are to be cared for in society. There's chapters about honesty and justice, not abusing the power that we have, uh, but using that appropriately. Andrew's going to deal in more detail with some of these chapters next week as he thinks about how we relate to other people. But again, we need to think about the fact that this is holistic. It's about being a holy people, living by God's standards uh, and being different in the way that they did this. So here's the issue for us then. What are we supposed to do with this? Uh, People often, when it comes to the Old Testament, accuse Christians of being hypocritical at this point because we don't do the things that are spoken about here in Leviticus, or more to the point that we insist on some of the things, some of the moral things that are stressed in the book of Leviticus, particularly around uh, sexuality and so forth, and yet we happily eat pork. We don't call the priest when there's mould in the house. We wear clothing which has two different types of thread in it when Leviticus says that that is an absolute no-no. So what's going on? Well, rather than being hypocritical at that point, I hope, what we're trying to do is actually say, how is this transformed through Jesus? As Christian people, we want to approach this book and we want to read it in light of Christ and how he has taken and transformed some of these things. So let's think about that. Here's a case study. What does Jesus do with these categories of clean and unclean, pure and impure? Jesus is on his way one day uh, to visit uh, a girl who's sick and is dying. And on the way he encounters a woman. Here is a woman who has been uh, bleeding for 12 years. She's had a flow of blood that has been uncontrollable. She's gone to doctors. She's paid big big bucks, but they can't help her. Under Leviticus, the law of Leviticus, this woman is unclean. There's a flow of blood. It's uncontrollable. She's unclean, and until the bleeding stops, she can't be declared clean again. What that means for her is that she can't approach God. She can't come to the temple at this time to offer sacrifices to be in God's presence because she's unclean. What's more, remember, uncleanliness spreads. Anything she touches, any person that she touches, also becomes 
unclean. So she's isolated from other people, outcast, if you like, because of her uncleanliness. And she hears that Jesus is this powerful teacher, this powerful man, and she thinks, he can help me. So as he's passing by, she reaches out and she just touches the end of his cloak. Now, what should happen here? Unclean things make clean things unclean, including clothing spreading to bodies. As she reaches out and touches, the uncleanliness within her, her impurity should spread from her into Jesus and infect him and make him unclean. It doesn't happen. There's something else that could happen. Uh, We know, and Andrew reminded us last week, that in Jesus we have God himself in human flesh, God living amongst us. The symbol of the tabernacle, God's presence in the midst of his people, is fulfilled in Jesus who is God himself, the word who has become flesh and is living amongst us. This woman reaches out in her unclean state and she touches God, she approaches God God's holiness could consume her and destroy her in her uncleanliness. That doesn't happen either. What happens? As she reaches out and touches Jesus' cloak, power goes out of Jesus and she realises in her own body that the bleeding has stopped and she's clean. Rather than unclean, infecting clean, the power of Jesus, God in human flesh, flows out and cleanses this woman, makes her whole, restores her to health, gives her life. And Jesus knows immediately that power has gone out of him and he says, who touched me? And this woman, trembling in fear, falls at his feet. You can imagine why. She's unclean. She's not allowed to touch anybody. She's touched Jesus and he's noticed She falls at his feet and she fesses up what she's done. And Jesus says to her, My daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. The power of Christ makes the unclean clean, the unhealthy healthy, restores people to wholeness and brings life in the midst of death. And you see this throughout Jesus' entire ministry. Go away this week and read the Gospels again in light of what you've learnt from Leviticus. It'll blow your mind. People with skin diseases, lepers, come to Jesus and say, you can make me clean and Jesus touches them. He could have healed them by speaking, but he touches them and the uncleanness doesn't flow to him and make him unclean. They are cleansed, they are restored and they're able to go and offer themselves to the priest to demonstrate that they've been made whole and clean again. Dead bodies, like the girl that Jesus was on the way to see. There's a girl lying dead. Jesus, the Gospel says, reaches out his hand and he touches her, constantly touching unclean things. And yet rather than him becoming unclean and impure, she's restored to life, gets up again, and Jesus says, get us some breakfast. It's a complete reversal of what is going on in the book of Leviticus. 
rather than uncleanliness, sickness, death spreading, Jesus sets things in reverse and life and health and restoration and cleanliness and purity flows out of him and gives life to the world. I read the Jesus Storybook Bible with my kids and there's a line in there which talks about the sad things becoming untrue. That's what happens with Jesus. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia series, talks about the magic working in reverse. That's what happens with Jesus. The life and goodness of Christ flows out and gives life and health and full restoration to those that he comes into contact with. What about the food laws? Jesus is actually criticised because his followers aren't pure enough and keeping the rituals enough in the way that they're dealing with food. And so Jesus responds in this way. This is Mark chapter 7. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. Mark says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus overturns the food laws and says, that's not what it's about. See, God was always concerned with the purity and the holiness of his people, but what he really wanted was that that heart at the depth that people were set aside for God and it flowed out of the heart into the way that they used their bodies and the way that they did things. But it's no good just having the external things if the heart isn't right. And Jesus comes and he says, ultimately it's about the purity of heart starting here and and flowing out and the food laws don't matter anymore. They are a picture, they are a symbol, they are a learning point, but that's not really what it's all about. With the coming of Jesus, he transforms things and he takes this shadow, this picture, and brings it to us in a new and powerful way. God wants holy people, people who have clean and pure hearts, committed to him, and that flows out into external obedience, how we use our bodies and our whole selves. So does that mean that Jesus just throws the whole lot out? Is it all gone because Jesus has come? Well, no, because in the very next verse, Jesus goes on to say this. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, evil, slander, arrogance and folly All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So Jesus is saying, he's not saying nothing matters anymore, but he's saying it's it's actually about a pure life flowing from the heart, through the thoughts, into our actions, which need to guide what we're doing. There's still clean and there's unclean, but it's not the same categories that we had in Leviticus. It's a life centred on God, centred on Christ, flowing out for the way that we use our body and the way that we care for other people around us. So Christians aren't arbitrary or hypocritical in the way we read the Bible. We need to read it very carefully, but we need to read it through Christ and what he teaches us and what he shows us about what holiness of life looks like. And as you come to the New Testament, you see we've got parts of the Bible which are written sort of here as well, reflecting on the book of Leviticus through Christ and guiding how we should live. So we've got Peter 
writing these words in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. He's quoting Leviticus. Peter is saying, this still matters. Holiness matters. We must be holy. And the same reason we must be holy is because of our relationship with God and who God is. Who are we? We're children. God has called us his children. Therefore, be obedient children. Live in a way which is honouring to God, which is holy, because that is who our Father in heaven is. So as obedient children, reflect his character and be holy in the way that you live. And if anything, this has been ramped up, up for us in the New Testament. Because again, where does the presence of God dwell? Well, in the book of Leviticus, God dwells in the tabernacle in the midst of his people. And then they build a temple and God is present there. Then when we come to Christ, we have God himself in human flesh living amongst people, the presence of God in Jesus. But where is God's presence now? In you. Here's what Paul writes. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. If you're a follower of Jesus, then he has given you his Holy Spirit to live in you and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the presence of God dwells within you. And therefore, there's a deeper call, isn't there, to holiness of life, to how we use our bodies, how we honour God and live as distinct and holy people in light of the fact that God dwells in us. So as we come to think about this and apply this, we need to think about holistically, how do we use our whole selves knowing that God dwells in us, we are temples of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean for us to actually understand ourselves and live our lives in a way which will honour God? Again, it comes back to the question of identity. Do you know who you are? That you are a child of God, that you belong to God, that you are loved by God, that God's spirit dwells within you? Because if you understand your identity that way, you can live out that identity in a holiness of life. Now we've got greater freedom than they had in the book of Leviticus. The rules don't apply in quite the same way that they did to us. And yet we shouldn't just create an unhealthy distinction between spiritual and physical or body and soul and say it's really our bodies don't matter anymore, it's only about the soul. Uh, Because we know of course that the trajectory of salvation is holistic and bodily that Jesus not only died on the cross to deal with our sins, but he rose from the dead, he was fully restored to life, and that the Christian hope is that we too will be raised from the dead as Christ was raised from the dead. It concerns all of us, every part of us. The restoration of Jesus is holistic and complete. It's about making the unclean clean, the unhealthy healthy again, restoring people to wholeness and bringing life in the midst of death. What does that mean for how we use our bodies and how we understand ourselves? 
How does it transform your identity and how you see yourself, how you approach sexual ethics, how you care for your body, how you eat, how you rest, how you exercise, because God is concerned with all of us living differently, caring for ourselves, having the wholeness of life and a healthy lifestyle that reflect the things of God, his health and his goodness, his love and his restoration. God loves you. God has called you. God has given you his Holy Spirit and God wants all of you. He wants you to reflect his holiness and his goodness of character. Just as he is holy, so he's called each one of us to a holiness of life. So let's pray and let's ask for God's help as we do that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are holy and pure and good and we want to reflect that in our own lives. Please help us to do that and we thank you most of all for your Son, Jesus Christ, the great healer and the great restorer, the one who brought cleanliness and purity and health and life and salvation and who offers that freely to each one of us. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to be fully transformed in every part of our life that we might live holiness of life in light of our relationship with him and reflecting your holiness that might be a powerful witness to all those around us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.